0: Welcome back Warriors, Tanse Sego, Ani Buju, Kwe Ninda Luisi Pam Palmeter, and I'm the host of this show, The Warrior Life. This podcast is a show about living the warrior life, a lifestyle that focuses on decolonizing our minds, bodies, and spirits, but at the same time revitalizing our cultures, traditions, laws, and practices. It's also about asserting, living, and defending our sovereignty all over Turtle Island. And I'm really happy to report that there has been thousands of our native brothers and sisters defending our sovereignty and land rights all over Turtle Island in solidarity with the Wet'suwet'en hereditary leaders and clan members for weeks now. We've seen solidarity by the youth in BC taking their power back and protesting outside of the BC legislature. We've seen the Haudenosaunee at Tandenega Mohawk Territory who built a camp near the railway in solidarity with the Wet'suwet'en. We saw Mi'kmaq peoples at Listigush occupying the rails in solidarity and many, many First Nations all over Canada who occupied legislatures, parliaments, streets, highways, railways, and ports, all in solidarity with the Wet'suwet'en. And the core issue that's uniting us all is always our sovereignty in our land. The people at these actions all stand with the Wet'suwet'en and support their demands for both the RCMP and Coastal GasLink Pipeline to leave Wet'suwet'en Territory. These actions show the strength of our peoples and shone a bright light on the gross failures by governments to respect our rights, both our land rights and our inherent right to say no to what happens on our territories. Problem is, the mainstream media and social media commentary has been full of misinformation because they rely primarily on the speaking points of government, the RCMP or industry spokespeople. This creates confusion and it's hard for Canadians to get to the truth of the matter. That's why I'm continuing to cover the Wet'suwet'en solidarity actions so that you have a chance to hear from indigenous peoples on the ground, native people who have a lifetime of experience in resisting Canada's ongoing colonization. Today, we are so lucky to be able to speak with native warrior and author Gord Hill. Gord Hill is a well-known grassroots native activist, writer, and artist, and his artwork and writings have been published in various outlets, including Briarpatch, Canadian Dimension Magazine, and Red Rising Magazine. And for those of you who follow my YouTube series called Reconciliation Book Club, you'll recall that we reviewed one of his books, 500 Years of Indigenous Resistance. In addition to that book, he's also the author and illustrator of two uh, comic books, 500 Years of Indigenous Resistance, published in 2010, and the Anti-Capitalist Resistance comic book, published in 2012, both by Arsenal Pulp Press. In my YouTube video, we also watched a video produced by Submedia where Gord explained the RCMP attack at Gustafson Lake and helped expose the underhanded Work and behavior of RCMP against Indigenous peoples. I honestly can't thank you enough, Gord, for taking the time to join us on this Warrior Life podcast. I know all of my listeners are going to be really interested in what you have to say about everything that's going on.
1: Yeah, we, this is Gila Kessler. Uh, thanks for having me again.
0: And I'm wondering if you would like to um, introduce yourself and where you're from in the way that you like to do it.
1: Sure. Uh, My name is Gordon Hill. I'm from the Kwakwaka'wakw nation and uh, my territory is located on uh, the Pacific Northwest of so-called British Columbia on uh, northern Vancouver Island. And uh, yeah, I do uh, mostly art and writing. And uh, right now, that's some of the main ways I can contribute to the, the movement and the activities going on now.
0: Well, I wonder if you can, like, talk to the listeners a bit about, you know, your life experience, because I noticed that in your work, you focus really heavily on Native resistance. Why is that?
1: Well, it became, um, I mean, uh, when I was a teenager, I was actually in, uh, in Army cadets, and then I joined the Army Reserve. And so that was going to be my career. I was going to join the military and be a soldier. Um, but I, I started. I got into uh, hardcore punk, anarchist punk music, and that really uh, opened my eyes. And <clears throat> I became involved in the anarchist and autonomous movements. And that's kind of what helped me break away from this military career that I was following. And once I got uh, kind of politicized and radicalized in the anarchist movement uh, in 1990, there was the Oka Crisis, and that kind of transformed my political outlook and what I was devoting myself to. And uh, from that time onward, I, uh, I just focused on Indigenous uh, peoples, Indigenous resistance. And that's uh, what I've done ever since. Uh,
0: and it's clear that this focus on Indigenous resistance, it also comes with like a significant knowledge, like a historical knowledge of what's happening. I mean, in your book, you're talking about, you know, this is 500 years of Indigenous resistance. This just didn't happen in the last couple of weeks.
1: Yeah, certainly not. Um, I mean, that was one of the things that I struggled to understand when when I really uh, I started to uh, be involved in indigenous resistance movements, I really wanted to understand the history of colonialism, like how did we come to be in the situation that we're in today? And that is, you know, the answer to that lies in history, knowing your history. Uh, there's a history of resistance that our people have that, you know, is very, can be very important in informing our struggles today. We can learn from that history. And uh, I think it just really helps us to understand, uh, you know, how colonialism works and how you can resist it. So, yeah, it's very important.
0: For the people who might not be familiar with Native resistance and why it is so important to us, like what's at risk if we're not engaged in these acts of resistance on an ongoing basis?
1: Well, I think, uh, I mean, on different levels, I mean, one, uh, we would be completely colonized and we would be absorbed into the Canadian society and just, uh, you know, we would have no rights or titles to lands. I mean, that's ultimately the the objective of the government is to completely eliminate the special status for indigenous peoples and even the reserve lands that we're left with. So, I mean, that's one aspect of it, that we would be completely assimilated into the uh, Canadian uh, political, legal, social system. Um, the other, And another aspect of it is uh, our, a lot of our territories, I mean, we already know a lot of our territories are contaminated by, you know, industrial activities. Uh, there are uh, massive clear cuts, uh, you know, the, the land is being devastated. And so if we didn't engage in these acts of resistance, the environmental conditions we live under would be even worse. Uh, the social conditions we live under would be even worse if we weren't engaging in this resistance. And that... And you know, and the idea that we uh, you know we have to care for the land and the environment for the next uh, generations. I mean, that informs our struggles of today as well, because we want to have uh, a healthy environment to for people uh, you know for our people to live in. And looking into the future, I mean, I mean, how much longer can this like self-destructive system maintain itself when you have this kind of uh, systemic uh, crises looming on the horizon? I mean, you need a healthy environment in order to survive and live in, and that's how our people have survived for, you know, thousands and thousands of years. So, I mean, that's just two aspects of why it's important to engage in these types of resistance, because, you know, on the one hand, you're, you're defending your culture, and that's I- interconnected to the land. It's how you survive as a people living under a colonial occupation.
0: Exactly. And so, you know, picking up on your two points, it's, you know, it's so important to us so that we don't lose our culture and our laws and our traditions and, you know, all of the wealth of knowledge from our peoples, but also, you know, our control and management over our own territories to protect against, like, ongoing environmental destruction. And on that second point, this isn't just important for Indigenous peoples. In fact, Canadians should be embracing this resistance because it's actually their futures that'll be impacted if we don't stop the environmental destruction, right?
1: Well, absolutely. I mean, uh, I mean, here in the North America, I mean, you really have to look at a multinational type of resistance movement and, you know, involving as much of the population as you can and uh, having alliances and solidarity between all the different social movements that are trying to achieve... Uh, positive change. Uh, you we know, don't want to protect the environment. They want to protect human rights and that. So it's very important to have this like this solidarity network established. And I think that's something we're seeing today with the UNISTAT, and we've seen it, you know, in previous mobilizations. But I mean, I think you know there are a lot of people in Canada that support Indigenous people, that support the idea of Indigenous rights and that. And that's something that we can definitely build on.
0: So that kind of leads me to this other issue, which I think you know, for a long time, Canadian officials have always been really worried about our solidarity building, because obviously, we're not always very public in what we're doing. We do a lot of stuff behind the scenes, we do a lot of work on the ground. And, you know, building these alliances has kind of increased our people power on the ground. Yet, traditionally, any police force, but the RCMP and others included, and government officials, have really portrayed native peoples generally as dangerous, you know, to try to convince Canadians that we're a threat to their safety, that we're a threat to the economy. They've called us militants, zealots, treat us like we're domestic terrorists. And I'm wondering if you'd talk a little bit about whose agenda that serves by portraying us like that when ultimately we've shown ourselves to be very peaceful.
1: Well, I mean, it's I mean it's a classic counterinsurgency uh, technique to try to criminalize any kind of uh, oppositional movement. I mean, there's a lot of different techniques that are used, but uh, trying to divide the movement from the rest of the population is is a basic a foundation of counterinsurgency. So when they try when they demonize us and criminalize us, our movement. Uh, You know, obviously, they're seeking to undermine public support, uh, sympathy and solidarity with the indigenous movement and the actions that it takes. On the other hand, I mean, looking at it from the state's point of view, indigenous movements are a threat. And I think you can see that today with the the Unistat and solidarity, uh, indigenous peoples have the capability to... Engage in direct actions that will disrupt the Canadian economy. That's the whole point of the slogan shut down Canada So, I mean you have two aspects of this one as well I think I mean on the one hand the state tries to undermine our movement and divide us and marginalize us on The other hand, you know, we have to we should acknowledge the fact that we do we we can mobilize ourselves And we do have the capacity to have an impact on the Canadian economy if that's part of our strategy to, uh, to gain an objective, we should uh, have confidence in our movement that we have this ability, and not just, you know, discard it because it's an important uh, tool that we have in trying to defend our territories, and that's what we're seeing at, at play today with the Unistat Solidarity movement. I mean, this this nation this nationwide uh, direct action campaign that's been targeting the railroads. I mean, this shows the potential of our movement to really affect uh, social change. And this is a threat to the state and the corporate uh, elites that kind of govern the country as well. So when you see that type of propaganda coming from the government, I mean, they are trying to protect their interests. I mean, this is a struggle. This is a a struggle for power, uh, a struggle for control, who controls the territories. Uh, We're trying to mobilize our forces to defend our territories. And they're trying to mobilize their forces to repress our movement. And it's important, I think, for people when they engage in these movements to understand that the state will engage in a counterinsurgency campaign.
0: Let's talk about that a little bit more because, you know, they have multiple techniques. We talked about one where they try to vilify us. You know, we're, you know, Canadians look out. You know, they're dangerous, they're militant, and, you know, they could hurt you to really try to to stop Canadians from supporting us. I don't think it's worked so far. I mean, we have more Canadians supporting us now than ever in history. But I'm wondering if you can talk to some of the other techniques that, you know, government and industry use to stop us, you know, to essentially make it so that we're not effective and they maintain power. Well,
1: I mean, one... Crucial aspect of this, of any type of counterinsurgency campaign, is the gathering of intelligence, and that's through surveillance. So your movement is uh, subjected to uh, widespread surveillance using uh, both physical and technical surveillance. Uh, your, you know, people who are organizers are going to be the targets of this surveillance. Um, you have disinformation campaigns where, you know, the, the state or other government agencies such as the police or intelligence agencies will release information that's meant to undermine our movement or to smear it. I mean, the 1995 standoff at, at Chipetan in the Chippetan territories, you know, at so-called Gustafson Lake. I mean, that's a really a valuable lesson for people to learn from in terms of uh, what types of things the police will do and the government in, in terms of like, uh, media disinformation campaigns. I mean, there was uh, Sergeant Montague, w- who was the main spokesperson for the RCMP during that operation. You know, he was caught on videotape saying that smear and disinformation campaigns were a specialty of the RCMP. I mean, so that's another aspect of it. Uh, you can look at, uh, in particular, the Federal Bureau of Investigations counterinsurgency campaign through the 1960s and 1970s in the United States of America where they used uh, a wide variety of tactics, including this type of disinformation campaigns. I mean, they fabricated uh, statements from groups that weren't true. They sent uh, uh, fabricated letters to support organizations, you know, for the Black Panthers who were having, uh, you know, feeding the children at school campaigns. The FBI, along with local police, uh, fabricated uh, very racist kind of coloring books or type of propaganda that they sent to supporters of the Black Panthers in an effort to get these uh, groups to withdraw their support. Um, you have uh, false arrests and imprisonment frame-ups. Uh, you know, a lot of people went to jail during the 1960s, 1970s on uh, false and trumped-up charges that were laid by the uh, police. Ultimately, you had you had the use of deadly force in the United States. So you had scores of organizers were killed and assassinated by the police. I mean, I mean so there's a lot of different things that a movement can experience mm-hmm. when a counterinsurgency campaign is launched against them. And it all depends on the level of your resistance. So if you have a high level of resistance, you have to expect that the counterinsurgency campaign is also going to ratchet up. And I think in the United States, I mean, they had a very high level of resistance. The state felt very threatened by the community organizing that was occurring. Um, again, um, you know, and the Black Panthers are a good example. The American Indian Movement was another example. You had infiltrators uh, going into the movement to not only to gather intelligence information, but to disrupt the organizing activities. Um, I would recommend people read the book by uh, uh, Agents of Repression. By Ward Churchill and Jim Vanderwall, which is a basically a very good documentation of the FBI's counterinsurgency campaign, and I think uh, you know th- those types of lessons, like we can learn a lot from those those uh, that that history of counterinsurgency. We're experiencing uh, similar uh, tactics and techniques being used against our movement today.
0: You know what happened in Wet'suwet'en territory? Well, you had the RCMP saying, "Oh, you know, we've left." Kirimdun camp and um camp and we've left Wet'suwet'en territory. So these government Wet'suwet'en talks can happen. Yet people at the camps, like actually on the ground, had tons of pictures and videos of the RCMP still there, still making patrols. They hadn't actually left. So if we weren't also following the people on the ground and we were only listening to the mainstream media we would have said, oh, well, isn't that great? The RCMP, in an effort to promote negotiations, actually left the territory. But in fact, that was a complete and blatant lie.
1: Yeah, I mean, during the Gustafson Lake standoff uh, and and the subsequent year-long trial in which a lot of this information was revealed, I mean, the police routinely lied about their activities. You know, they, like that smear and disinformation campaign... It was like a propaganda campaign waged against the indigenous land defenders at the time in order to isolate them and marginalize them. And they were, I I think at the time, they were fairly effective in doing that because they actually, uh, they stopped any media uh, from being able to enter into this zone of operations they'd established. And this was learned from Oka 1990. So in Oka 1990, I mean, this was the first uh, really significant uh armed resistance action that the state had to uh contend with and it was a you know it was a very large-scale operation you know they ended up sending in the military but one thing they learned from that during that time there was uh, so much media coverage and media were actually in the treatment center or behind the lines with the warriors and there was so much coverage of it um and this really concerned the state because what they learned afterwards in an analysis was that all this media coverage actually uh, created more public support for the warriors and the deployment of the military and the portrayal of this heavily armed military force and these lightly armed warriors standing up to this, you know, this massive uh, military force. I mean, that also created more public sympathy. So one lesson they learned from Oka 1990 was to really control media access because you did have sympathetic reporters or at least somewhat unbiased reporters on the ground, Trying to give both sides of the story. And when both sides of the story came out, a lot of people uh, supported the Mohawks. So we, in 1995, when you had the two other significant standoffs, one being Ipperwash in uh, Southern Ontario and then Gustafson Lake in Central British Columbia, I mean, you saw the lessons learned from that Oka counterinsurgency applied at that time. And they really restricted the media coverage at the time. And what they did with those operations was then they just fed the media, the police propaganda and the government propaganda. And that's what the media took and they ran with it. And so that's the type of thing. Um, I mean, that's one mm-hmm. uh, example of how they will try to marginalize, undermine the movement by controlling the flow of information and only presenting their side of the story in order to, and, and it's basically a disinformation campaign in order to mobilize the public for any repressive acts that they're going to carry out. uh, And that's counterinsurgency, marginalize the movement so that it can be repressed.
0: literally see that playing out here. I mean, look at what happened in Wet'suwet'en territory right before the RCMP invaded and forcibly removed Wet'suwet'en peoples they prevented the access of the journalists they actually drove them out of the area Um, uh, at least one of them was detained i think it was for eight hours and wouldn't let journalists report on what they were doing and if it wasn't for the people actually in the camps able to record and take pictures, we wouldn't have had a full picture of what was happening. And then, you know, you you look at what the OPP did at Tandanega Mohawk Territory, they did the same thing. They kept the press so far back that they couldn't record. And if it wasn't for the fact that we had our own people inside, you know, the Tandenega Mohawk camp with, you know, being able to report on it, we wouldn't have seen it. So although that's a breach of their own so-called Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms and freedom of the press, they will do whatever it takes to make sure the public doesn't see our side of things. And so far, they haven't been successful.
1: I mean, one, what- one thing about today that's different from Oka 1990 and uh, in 95 with Gustafson Lake and Ipperwash is now you have you know widespread social media use. It's a lot easier to produce counter information that challenges the, the police or the state's uh, narrative. So it's a lot harder for them to do that today. I mean, one thing during Oka, they shut down the cellular phone service so that reporters who were on the inside couldn't even communicate and file their stories. And so they they do have, they can bring in the technology to actually shut down your internet and cell phone use. So that's something to consider. Uh, even though, you know, using social media, we can definitely counter the narrative and get our, our stories out as you're doing today.
0: You know, when I think about this, I don't think they expected social media to be such a powerful force that it is. I mean, there's lots of noise on social media, so they can do counter information and, you know, fakes and trolls and all that kind of stuff too. However... We tend to be very connected. We know who's who. And so I found it interesting that for some of the people that were arrested and charged for a Wet'suwet'en solidarity action, that some of them are reporting that the conditions that are being placed on them include not using social media and not advocating and not sharing information, which I think also breaches Canadian laws. But it shows just how worried they are about our facts getting out.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I would recommend, I mean, it's different for each person, whatever situation they're in, but I mean, when those types of conditions are applied, it's very, uh, a good thing to refuse those conditions and to challenge them because it can really limit your ability to uh, organize and communicate. And I mean, that's the goal of what they're trying to do when they impose conditions like that, or no, no contact orders. Like, so you can't even be with other people that are involved in organizing or you can't attend rallies. I mean that's that that I mean those types of conditions can be challenged, but the, the problem is it could mean your your imprisonment could be extended because you know you need your lawyers or whoever to get in to challenge some of these conditions. But I mean that's definitely one of the goals of arrests and imposing conditions like that on people is to disrupt our organizing.
0: I mean not that I was shocked or anything because we've been, you know, experiencing this for decades, more than decades now, but on, on one of the access to information reports that came out about RCMP surveillance on Native people, on, you know, people that were s- supporting the Unistotin and Gidimden camps, was that their primary concern was our ability to generate public support. And in fact, not their focus wasn't even criminality, and they didn't find any criminality. It was just we've got to monitor these people because they can generate public support. I mean, what does that say really about how upside down law enforcement is in this country?
1: Ultimately, the role of law enforcement agencies is to protect the state and the corporate interests. And that's exactly what they do. They are agents of repression. I mean, the RCMP were created as the Northwest Mounted Police, primarily as a policing force to control Indigenous populations and to extend colonial tr- control into the, the plains or the prairie region uh, so that's always been the and of course the uh, Northwest Mounted Police were modeled after the Royal Irish Constabulary which was a colonial policing force the British had established in Ireland uh, so in in the British Empire when you talk about the origins of the police they're primarily uh, in colonial Uh, situations and they're basically a a colonial police force and so this is really the role of the RCMP and the social control aspect of it is maintaining a a social peace uh, a law and order which facilitates the business as usual which is you know resource extraction industrial production or, or whatever so that's really the role of the police so I would say when you know we when we look at these situations of you know Yeah, we're not surprised, and we should understand that this is the role of the police. And when their concern, main concern, is about the ability of organizers to generate public support, yeah, yeah, that's because they're looking at what is the potential of this movement, Uh, how can it affect business as usual, Uh, because the role of the police is to maintain law and order so that business as usual can proceed. And that's one of you know, and I think right now what we're seeing with the Unistat and solidarity is that the ability to have this widespread solidarity is a serious threat to the Canadian nation state. And that's why Indigenous resistance movements are seen as a national security issue. And that's why you have special police and intelligence units that just focus on Indigenous resistance organizers and movements. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I wish Canadians knew all of this, and I think, you know, our brothers and sisters are doing a really good job of giving Canadians, you know, a quick education, but the multiple levels and layers in which all of this is really scandalous in the sense of, think about an army of RCMP essentially acting like the private security forces of all of these large corporations because i mean that that's what they are and oh,
1: absolutely. you know
0: the, the rcmp weren't acting on criminal charges they were acting on a private injunction got you know a civil injunction by a corporation and then somehow that triggers the entire force of the rcmp where none of ours none of our court cases which are you know literally constitutionally protected rights allegedly none of that justifies the RCMP to come in and protect our rights. And then this week, I mean, none of us, again, should be surprised, but sometimes I, you know, I shake my head at the level of scandal at the RCMP, but the RCMP should actually have stood down for a completely other reason. They are in a total conflict of interest on many levels, but the RCMP pensions are Heavily invested in TC Energy, the one that owns coastal gasoline pipelines. So they have an obvious financial conflict. It should have been declared. They should have stood down. But, you know, it takes investigative reporters to find out all this information. I mean, it's just unbelievable how entwined the RCMP is with these, you know, extractive industry corporations.
1: Yeah, I mean, they have a very close relationship with corporations i mean the oil gas in, in the oil and gas industry i mean the police and intelligence agencies meet with uh, oil and gas corporate executives to talk about security to talk about protecting their infrastructure to talk about these protests so they are very closely allied with the uh, corporations and yeah certainly uh, you know they have investments in some of these corporations as was revealed with this uh, this pension uh, business so yeah but I mean uh, you know the, again the, the police are a, a, a government agency uh, they were created to protect the interests of the state and the ruling class and that's the role that they perform. I mean this idea that they're a neutral actor mm-hmm. in society is something that's is just it's like their propaganda it's a part of how they can pacify the population into accepting this policing uh, system that we have. So I mean, people have to have some faith in the police, and so they will go through the motions of appearing as something of a neutral force. But, I mean, it's all just uh, smoke and mirrors, and, you know, if you look at society, you analyze the society and the role of the police, I mean, they're clearly uh, an instrument of the ruling class to impose uh, their will on the people, on the population.
0: Clearly, that's the case. There are so many problems, and it's had extricated. It. I mean, if you only looked at the RCMP, and these things are similar with police forces across the country, as you know. But if you only looked at the RCMP, I mean, aside from their pensions being invested literally in venture, I mean, look at the RCMP. Human Rights Watch has investigated the RCMP in. Northern BC for all of the reported, you know, rapes and physical assaults by RCMP officers on Native women and girls. So, you know, that's an issue. They've been sued by their own female officers and staff for sexual harassment and sexual assault. I mean, one of the largest class actions ever at the RCMP. They had their own, like, corruption investigation for hundreds and hundreds of RCMP officers doing the things you talked about. I mean, planting evidence, giving false testimony, using their information database for their own purposes to to look up where people live. I mean, no end to the problems in the RCMP, yet despite our calls for, you know, governments to really clean house on the RCMP, I mean, no one believes that that's ever going to happen.
1: No, I mean, this has been going on for decades. I mean, if you remember in the early 1970s, there was the whole, I mean, it was revealed in the late 70s that the RCMP had engaged in a a very uh, large campaign of dirty tricks and sabotage, illegal actions, breaking enters, stealing files, uh, planting bombs, uh, all this stuff came out in the late 1970s, the RCMP's security service, which at the time was the National kind of intelligence agency. It was within the RCMP, and they removed this the the, the uh, security service from the RCMP. They shut it down, and that's why the Canadian Security Intelligence Service (CSIS) was established because of all the corruption and dirty tricks that the RCMP had engaged in, uh, primarily in Quebec, against Quebec independence movement, the labor movement, uh, what and whatnot. Uh, so all this has been revealed that uh, for decades this has been how the police have functioned. And one thing about the RCMP, I mean, they were really promoted as this kind of uh, iconic symbol of Canada, part of the whole mythology of the nation state of Canada revolved around the RCMP and how they were such good guys. They went out onto the prairies to protect the natives from the bad American settlers and all this type of stuff. And one thing you've, you can, you've seen in the last couple of decades is how the image of the RCMP has been completely tarnished. They're no longer looked on as this kind of... Uh, you know, Dudley Do-Right or whatever, this kind of noble knight in shining armor police officer who does all all good. I mean, that's been pretty much revealed to not be true. And I think a lot of people have a very poor opinion of the RCMP today because of all these scandals and, you know, controversies, uh, which you've mentioned and going back into the seventies, certainly with uh, what they were doing uh, mostly in Quebec with all the break and enters and all these illegal actions and stuff. And that's something that the RCMP, you know, that affects the morale of their officers and that. So it has a big impact on uh, policing and the relationship between the police and the population. And of course, the relationship between the police and indigenous people is very poor. And they're always trying to come up with new initiatives to try to uh, present the police as having better relationship now, you know, with, with the indigenous people. And, and the same thing applies for the military. I mean, these repressive agencies are always trying to portray themselves as really uh, caring and they're always trying to you know, uh, do their uh, cultural training and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, there's no uh, real fundamental change because there's no systemic change that, and, and it's, there's no change in what the function of the RCMP or any police agency is. So that's why, you know, we advocate for uh, radical social change because these systems of control and oppression have to be dismantled in order for us to survive as a people and for the environment to survive. Uh, because the way we're going now, as I mentioned before, we're on a course of self-destruction. And these policing and intelligence agencies, you know, they actively work to stop social movements that are protecting the environment, that are trying to stop the ecological destruction and provide a better future for all life on Earth. And that's because they are the tools of the government and and the corporations.
0: You know, everything that you're saying is something that should be common knowledge. Like, Canadians should know all of this for lots of reasons. I mean, if they paid attention to the media headlines, not that you can always trust those, but we have had so many justice inquiries in this country. If you look at the Donald Marshall wrongful... Prosecution inquiry said, you know, the police and the judges and the lawyers all discriminated against him and wrongfully imprisoned him because he was native. If you look at the Manitoba justice inquiry, they talked about racism in police. I mean, Neil Stonechild inquiry for, you know, one of the most blatant acts of police racism and violence is these starlight tours where they, you know, pick up native people, drive them out to the edge of town where they, you know, freeze to death. And, you know, you've got, you've got this Ipperwash inquiry. They specifically address this myth, you know, the, the one bad apple myth, because people say, oh, you know, there's so many good people that, you know, work in law enforcement, you know, that there's a a few bad apples in every bunch. But this Ipperwash inquiry said, in fact, no, the, the racism against native people is widespread. And you know, ultimately, if you look at all of these reports. It's essentially like an infection that's never been addressed. And that became loud and clear during, you know, the BC Human Rights Watch report when they reported on all of the reports by these women and girls about RCMP rapes and harassment. And then the response from the head of the RCMP sent out an email to all of the RCMP and said, ah, don't worry about that. I got your back. As if condoning that kind of behavior and then no intention of ever dealing with it.
1: Absolutely. I mean, certainly with all, all these inquiries going on and all the reports, it's all out there. And the fact that people are, are ignorant of these of this history, I mean, it just shows what their priorities are. Indigenous people are not a big priority. So, but certainly I think Indigenous people, a lot of Indigenous people know about this history and that. And, and that's part of the reason there's such a poor relationship between Indigenous people and the police. And within the police, I mean, they are an oppressive agency. Uh, a lot of them, you know, it's a cultural problem within the institution of mm-hmm. the RCMP, for example. I mean, their very history is based on anti-Indigenous uh, actions, uh, controlling the planes, uh, all this type of stuff, Force uh, taking the children into residential school. I mean, that, that's the whole history of the RCMP. So I think it's very deeply embedded. Uh, I think in general, you have the, the racism within Canada and these guys who become police officers, you know, that's how they grow up. And that's what their attitude is. I mean, Canada is basically an apartheid state. You have two different worlds, two main primary worlds. One is Indigenous and one is non-Indigenous. And the non-Indigenous population is largely ignorant of the conditions and the history that Indigenous peoples have had to contend with.
0: And, and I, you know, I see this real power shift. Like you talked about the fact that we do have the power to have a fundamental change. I mean, we have the the power to interrupt systems. We have the power to get attention. We have the power to communicate with one another. We have the power to strategize. And it's very, very clear that our future success is going to rely on us exercising that power in solidarity and allyship with all of the other... Canadians who are working on similar issues whether it's the environment or anti-homelessness anti-poverty you know human rights protections you know all of these things stopping violence against Indigenous women and I'm wondering what are your thoughts on the really difficult balance that we have to make between you know we have to always put so much effort into resistance and defending ourselves and our territories and our lands, but also on the resurgence part of things, you know, revitalizing our cultures and languages and rebuilding and empowering and strengthening our nations. Like it's such a tough balance to make sure that we have enough energy into both when we're under constant attack.
1: You know, one person can't do everything, but Mm. when you have a community and you have a movement organizing People fulfill different roles within it. Some people are very good at communication. Some people are really good at artwork. Uh, some people are really good at legal research. Some people are really good at fundraising. Uh, and, I, and I think uh, within communities, you generally have people who have those capabilities. I mean, one thing I see somewhat lacking is the organization of uh, any kind of security, uh, any kind of warrior society, I think, overall is, is somewhat lacking. And that's why I think you're seeing um, a lot of these or some of these uh, train and highway blockades being threatened by far-right racist vigilantes and being dismantled, people fe- fearing for their safety and taking down their blockade. And that speaks, that you know, that tells me that what they're lacking is the ability to defend their action and that's because they don't have some kind of security to protect them and i think mm-hmm. that's one aspect of our movement that i think needs to be looked at seriously because if we're going to you know people are going to continue on with these direct actions this backlash from far right racist vigilantes is going to increase and they've been organizing uh, on a higher level for a number of years now, especially with the election of Trump in the United States, which really mm-hmm. empowered and emboldened the far right. So they've uh, got stronger networks. They can mobilize groups to go out to challenge these uh, blockades. And I would just, I would say that's one aspect of things that we're really lacking. And that's a part of our traditional cultures as well that's mm-hmm. often overlooked or marginalized. Or we have this idea that, Uh, Today, a warrior is someone who's on social media. And I think that's totally incorrect and dangerous to proceed with that type of attitude, because we need warriors who are going to physically defend people and the actions that they're taking.
0: Well, yeah, and it goes along with what you were saying about you know, all of us doing our part in different ways according to our skills and abilities and all of that. So it's about, you know, balancing our resources. You, you know, you have people out there that have to do the research and writing and the people out there who are on the ground. And then, you know, the people who defend the people on the ground and all the people who are in, you know, the concentric circles around supplying the people on the ground and, you know, taking care of kids and taking care of communities. It's, you know, about all of us doing our part. And you know, one thing I just I was going to ask you especially given the struggle. You know, it's it's an ongoing struggle. It's really really difficult. But on on the positive side of things is that we still have people willing to take all of these risks and make these sacrifices to engage in the struggle and defend our peoples and our territories and try to keep us safe. I mean, some of the most inspiring moments in this Turtle Island, was seeing the Haudenosaunee or Mohawk warriors defend themselves from the siege at Ganawage and Gunasatage, you know, during that summer, or these Sundancers at uh, Gustafson Lake, and and or the peaceful land defenders at Ipperwash or at Elsipogtog, and and now you know these really peaceful clan members and hereditary leaders in the Wet'suwet'en Nation. So, although the struggle is difficult. And we shouldn't have to be engaged in it. It also gives hope to our youth that we are still engaged in this. Maybe not everybody. We still have people willing to defend who we are and our territories. And I'm wondering if you have, you know, any advice for all of the native youth who are listening, who are engaged, you know, at the BC legislature or, you know, they're protesting on parliament or who are thinking about how this brings us hope for the future. If you have any advice for our native youth.
1: Well, one thing I would say just in general about that is like you you need the regeneration of the movement because you can't just have uh, people who in the 1970s became involved in sort of organizing and that's, you know, they're the ones doing it today because mm-hmm. you have to have this regeneration of the of the resistance. And that's what things like this Unistat Solidarity campaign, that's what this does, mobilizes a new generation of indigenous Land defenders, land protectors, whatever you want to call them. And this is crucial. This is a very important part of the indigenous resistance, of any resistance movement, is this gener- ongoing generational uh, struggle so that it's understood. I mean, a lot of the people involved in the 1990s, you know, resi- indigenous resistance were the children of the red power generation who were active in the 60s and 70s. And, mm-hmm. and I know a lot of the youth involved today. Are are the same. They're they're the children of the people who became active in the 80s and 90s. So this is a really important part. This is a, a foundational part of, of especially for me the indigenous resistance movement because it, a lot of times it's, it's family based. So this regeneration is very important. Um, the thing about that, what I would say to you know the new generation or people who are just becoming involved in these in these social movements is you really need to study the history of these movements, the history of resistance, uh, the history of repression, so that you, know, you can learn from the, the lessons from the past. Because a lot of sacrifices were made by the prior generation. A lot of people died. A lot of people went to jail. So we don't want to let their sacrifices go in vain. We want to learn the lessons from the previous generations. So I'd say that's a really important part of uh, people becoming involved today. I would say another important thing to consider is that we need a diversity of tactics because just like one person can't do everything and change society, it Mm -hmm. takes an entire movement of people, it also takes a a wide variety and diversity of tactics to achieve our goals. It can't just be like one method is going to work. That's not not reality. You look Mm -hmm. at any successful liberation movement in the world, Used, there was a diversity of tactics being used. It was the nonviolent civil disobedience, boycotts, protests, newsletters, flyers, posters, and militant resistance on the ground. People fend their communities and whatnot. So, I, I would say those two things are the off the top of my head, those are the two most important things. Is know the history. Know the history of resistance. The history of repression, and uh, work towards a diversity of tactics. That's what solidarity is. Mm-hmm. Solidarity isn't just I support you because you uh, follow my beliefs to the letter. No solidarity yeah. is is supporting one another, even if we don't uh, agree a hundred percent with the tactics or the methods or whatever. So those are two main things I'd say.
0: You know, that's really, really important advice because we know that, you know, the RCMP and governments and industry, they always adapt to the things that we do and we need to adapt to what they're doing, but also, you know, looking at weak spots and things like that. So I really like the diversity of tactics and I really like your advice around knowing the history knowing the sacrifices of all of our ancestors and people that made sacrifices knowing how we got here like knowing canada's culpability you know the genocidal tactics and and all of the ways in which they've oppressed our people that's important and also the history of all of these social movements i really like that you included that because we can learn these tactics they worked or didn't work here they were you know they worked or didn't work here here's what came out of this and really making sure that we're constantly learning and adapting because this like I, I completely agree with you, the regeneration of the movement. Governments always talk about, oh, intergenerational trauma and all of that other stuff. Well, we we focus very highly on indigenous, you know, intergenerational resistance and intergenerational, you know, empowering and strengthening one another. So I think your advice is gonna go a long way to the native youth out there. And uh, like all of the information and insight that you shared today, you just, you don't get that in the mainstream media. And I'm so thankful that you took so much time to share all of that with us. And I hope we can have you back. I hope you also keep yourself safe on the ground. And um, I know all of the people that you work with are are, uh, better informed because you're there helping and giving advice.
1: Thank you, thank you, and uh, thanks for the work that you do, like what you're doing is very important as well. It's part of the counter information information and getting our views out is is crucial.
0: Thank you, and um, what I'm going to do is also... Like, post a link to your books and your materials so that people who want to know more and lear- learn more can um, access all of that. And to all of my listeners, like, I hope you learn so much. I mean, I learned so much today from Gord. And uh, thank you all for tuning into my show. I'm really thankful that Gord took so much time to share all of his insights and experience. I mean, he's really knowledgeable about all of these issues. Like I said, I'll post links to his books in the description box below so that you can access them. And I'm also going to post links again, like my other shows, to where you can support the Wet'suwet'en. They have uh, supporter toolkits and also there's uh, new support links for the Tandenega Mohawks and others. And if you like this episode, please consider supporting it by sharing it. That's how we get the information out. And you can access like all of my content, you know, whether it's videos on the Wet'suwet'en or podcasts talking with people on the ground, or blogs, or my publications, all in one place on my website, www.pampometer.com. Till next time, keep living a warrior life. Walao. Well,